Welcome to the Atypical Rainbow. I'm Paul. And I'm Grant. Uh, and this is the final episode in the Relationships Trilogy as part of our Spectrum Analysis series. Uh, today we're going to focus on family and autism. Now, uh, I, this for me started... So I, I got diagnosed with autism as an adult. So I didn't really grow up with that kind of knowledge, and which I, I, I imagine probably would have made a difference because certainly with Jake and Matt, we talk to them a lot about autism and we contextualize a lot of their feelings and, and actions in it. Um, but as an adult, it, you know, it's kind of different because then it, what I spent a lot of time doing was I spent a lot of time reflecting back on my time as a teenager and I, I didn't have a particularly good relationship with my parents, um, my mum particularly. But looking back on it, I think part of it was, in fact, my autism, in that I was quite emotional and I was quite rigid about the way of things I wanted to, to be. But, you know, one could argue that's just being a teenager. But I think the autism just kind of magnified the teenage experience because I didn't know who I was, I didn't know what I wanted, and I kind of just wanted to be understood. But... I'm not even sure I understood myself. And I think it made it really hard for my mom because she, she just wasn't equipped for this sort of thing. She didn't get that kind of preparation. She all thought this was just a little bit strange or a little bit, you know, teenage hormone-y and dismissed it instead of giving me space or credence or whatever it was I needed. Not that I'd know at the time, I guess. I think that is one of the differences between just, like, if you have the autism diagnosis... There's that sense of like, okay, yes, it's not just that they're a misbehaving teenager who could do better. Mm. There's actually a reason why they're behaving this way. Yeah. Because I think a lot of um, people sort of skip to the idea. It's like, oh, it's just a brat. And the same with kids with autism. Like if they're having a meltdown in the supermarket, people are like, oh, bad parenting, bratness and stuff. So I think if you'd had that diagnosis, it would have given you and her more knowledge of the fact that it wasn't just that you were choosing to be a rebellious team. Yeah, I just I guess on the idea of the term brat, I also uh, take issue with the term attention-seeking. So I find that a lot of people, more so when uh, a person has autism and intellectual disability, when they're crying out, a lot of, a lot of I guess, the older parents or the previous generation say, oh, they're just attention-seeking. And I would say to them, but yeah, but what are they trying to seek your attention for? Mm. Are they in pain? Are they hungry? Are they wanting something that they can't communicate? You know, using the term attention-seeking is very dismissive. And I think that's why, again, with with the context of autism, a teenage, you know, rage out, outburst may not necessarily just be a teenage thing. There might be other things underlying it. But I, and, but I guess at the same time, though, looking at it from the parent perspective, even if you did have the tools or the support to help you get through it, it's still a lot to experience. Because, you know, you love your kids and you want them to be well and to watch them go through something that they don't even necessarily understand and may not have the maturity or the experience to understand. I feel like it would be really emotionally taxing. Well, yeah, I think I think it it would be emotionally taxing. Um, but like, I find personally, I am more understanding of someone if there's a reason than if it if there's no reason. Though, admittedly, there probably always is a reason. Mm. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a diagnosis of the reason. You know, it could be something completely different. But I think that yeah, I give more consideration to people who like have autism when they behave in a certain way at a certain age that's not seen as age appropriate 
Mm. And it really goes to show that, as, as we've talked about so often through all these episodes, is that the issue with expectations is really important. Having really clear expectations of yourself and of other people makes a lot of difference. And certainly for me as a person with autism, I know that I... I interact with people better, family or otherwise, when I know what's expected of me and when I know what um, you know what what the rules are and how I'm meant to do things. And so, with family, I find it's um it's trickier. Really, I find some a lot of the rules for family I find can be really arbitrary. Um, particularly growing up as a Vietnamese person, I um, you know there are all these family obligations, all these things you're meant to do. Um, all these ways you're expected to behave, and a lot of it, I just thought, I don't, why? Like, is there a logical reason for it? And often the answer is, no, this is just what we do, or this is how it is, or it's part of you being Vietnamese. And and I think as I've gotten older, and particularly, you know, growing up in, in a Western society where it hasn't been this sort of universal um, expectation, I, I kind of go, why would I bother? It doesn't make It doesn't make any logical or practical sense. I shouldn't just do it because it's a cultural thing. Well, yeah, but I don't know. It is strange for you to not be making fun of white culture. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> as you were talking, I was thinking about the idea of like being at Christmas. And it's kind of like, you have to stay until everybody's sick of being at Christmas. Yes. Not the first person who's sick of being at Christmas. Um, and it's like, no, just go socialize. You know, we're still talking to the adults. So, you know, go and socialize. Even if you, you know, have autism and you're just drained completely yeah oh look i'm not i'm not saying that the experience of cultural expectations and family obligations is unique to being vietnamese i think it's just there are some things that might be um i'm just surprised that you're kind of comparing white people things to being preferable (laughs) i didn't i didn't say it was preferable i just said this is what i grew up with that's (laughs) okay i'm talking about my own experiences but yes there are some things that in in caucasian culture that i'm a bit like why (laughs) one of the things i often struggle to understand and more so i think with my patients than me specifically is the idea of family bonding and this is a very i think overly logical way of looking at it. But I find that if if you're in a family that you just don't get along with, you know, I think it's easy to forget that actually you're just a collection of people. Like, you have the shared experience of growing up together. And obviously, by that I mean parents and siblings as well. But if you just don't have anything in common, like, how much are you really expected or should you really be expected to get along with them as though they were your friends? You know? I think it's hard if... Like, it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, in a relationship, sometimes one person's more into it than the other. It's hard on the people who are more into the relationship. Like, say it's a parent and a strange child. Mm. It's very hard on the parent if they still feel that bond, but the kid doesn't, and therefore becomes estranged from them. Yeah, and I don't doubt that it's difficult. I, mean, I guess it depends on what perspective you look at it from. So I, uh, you know, in my former life, I worked a lot in mental health. And a number of patients I would have would talk about the idea that, you know, their their family were, not to be overly dramatic about it, but traumatizing them, mm-hmm. whether it be you know, emotionally or, or whatever. But they would still feel like, oh, but they're my family. And that came up a lot. And I just thought, 
that doesn't make any sense to me. Because if they're the reason why you're having problems or why you're experiencing your mental health issues, why are they still around? And, you know, you, you argue things like love and, and connection, but how far does that go? Like, how, how much does that excuse, really? I don't know. Like, in, in a way, maybe family is the final safety net against loneliness. Like, you might be having trouble making friends, you might be single, but... If you have a family, you're kind of like, well, they'll still be there for me. Even if we don't get along. I'm not alone in the world. Which I think can be a problem, um, you know, in older age for people who have never had families. Where they actually don't have any living family. And they actually don't even have that safety net falling back and go, oh, you know, at least I still have my sister. Or at least I still have my mum and dad. Like, if they're at a certain age where their parents have passed away and they never had children. Maybe they're only child. There is no... Yeah, there is no final safety net against loneliness. But that's assuming that you... The connection with a um, non-blood relation, like a, like a friend, obviously, or a partner, is less um, connected than it is with them. Oh, no, this is more if you're not... If you don't have those connections either. Yeah, okay. It's, it, like as I said, it's the final safety net. It's not saying that um, the family bonds are better than like i think most people would agree that the person they marry they probably feel more close to than their parents the parents will probably feel different the parents probably feel very close to their kids more that so than the kids probably feel to their parents but i think yeah if you if you're having troubles in other areas of loneliness then just knowing your family is there i think can be a safety net but that might be why people are hesitant to cut ties is what i'm saying yeah, I, I, I understand. And look, I, I think maybe I'm coming at it from a very limited perspective because as difficult as my relationship has been with my parents, I think overall it's still been a fairly over like positive relationship in, in certain respects. Mm. You know, um, I know that for them, a lot of... You know, they, there's, that, there's that book by um, Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages or whatever it is, mm. and... I think one of them is about gift giving. So the idea that the way you show your love is by doing things and providing things. And I think that was very much what it was for my parents is that they, they kind of gave me the stuff that I needed, the, the, you know, the, the tangible physical stuff. And in a way, like it wasn't what I needed at the time, but I guess there was no way for me to know that. There was no way for them to know that. And certainly... As I've gotten older, while I still stand by the idea of, well, if family treat you badly, you shouldn't, you should, it doesn't matter that they're family, you should just kind of disconnect. At the same time, I can see the difficulties and I actually have a lot more empathy for my parents because I wasn't the easiest child to deal with in, in some respects. I was still very nerdy and fairly well behaved and stuff, but when it came to my emotional distress and my uncertainty about my identity and all those sorts of things. I think that that was probably a lot for them. And I, I, yeah, I, 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 that also makes me sort of worry about what's going to happen in our future as well, to some degree. Um, and then how, how our relationship with our kids is going to be influenced by autism, both my own as well as theirs. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I think, I think maybe partly with your parents it was refugee mentality because the um, giving giving money to create, you know, private school education and becoming a doctor and financial security through being a doctor um, does seem to be very common among refugee families. 
Mm. So that might have also tied into it. That, yeah, they had, like, yeah, they were working so hard to provide you with all these things that they needed to, to let you have this amazing start in this new promised land. Yeah. That, yeah, they would have had to fall into gift-giving even if it wasn't their natural love language, I guess. Yeah. There is also an element of cultural uh, influence as well there. Like, so I find that sometimes culture can be kind of, in a way, anti-autistic in that culture can provide some really clear boundaries, some, or not clear, but sometimes clear boundaries about, you know, expectations and rules and behaviours. Some of it's vague, some of it's not. But then the problem is, is that if those rules don't match up with what the individual person wants, and that's often where a lot of the um, conflict between parents and, and children with autism kind of come, is that conflict of cultural expectation. So, if, you know, you and I have had conversations with friends who will describe something that sounds very autistic, very much like, this is the way it is, that is the end. Um, but it is actually just kind of cultural. Like, you know, certain mm. cultures just have this sort of um, label and these these requirements of their children. And you kind of think, well, okay, is is it cultural? Is it autistic? Does it work? Does it not work? Um, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to really... Um, put them in context in a way that is actually uh, usable. Like, how do you adapt, you know? Yeah, like, um, to use an example of, I guess, a Western culture, um, like, the idea of everyone going to church every Sunday was very cultural, um, you know, there's set rules, but also might have given a sense of community, especially early on if you're, like, in a town or village and everyone's there, Mm. like, you see people. Um, so it probably did give a sense of community if you take out all the religion of it mm. as a cultural practice. And the same thing could be said for, you know, people getting together on, you know, Christmas or something. It, um, is about family and community and it does have benefits to doing the ritual of it. So I think, yeah, so it can feel a bit random, um, and I don't know. Sometimes autistic, sometimes not autistic, the cultural things. But I guess they've sort of existed because they serve some purpose for mm. people. But yeah, I, th- I think um, physical affection is an interesting cultural thing that we've found. Like, I was, I was listening to um, a video the other day talking about whether or not it would be a good thing if handshaking basically just goes out of favour because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and this person was really like, no, no, I love shaking hands. But early on in the pandemic, someone was talking about the fact that, you know, in Japan, they like bow to each other and it serves the same purpose, but does not transmit the flu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like if, if we started bowing to each other, um, or tapping it, like, I think there's been a few attempts, like the main one that's kind of stuck is the elbow one. I think because it resembles a handshake, mm. um, and people think it's kind of fun to do. It's probably not great for infection. I think the um, the ankle tap was better mm-hmm. and bowing is better. Um, and if we did go to one of those things as a permanent change to our culture, I don't think it would have would necessarily be bad so much as different. Yeah. Um, which, as an autistic person, you can struggle with something just being different. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, we are recording this on the side of um, Daylight Savings, and I... 
I did inform Jake that yes, every year he's angry at daylight savings occurring. <laughs> he's getting less angry, but yeah, he's he's just like this is stupid. I'm like, yeah, you think that every year, and it's okay that you think that. Mm. Now, in a couple of days, he'll forget about it, but yeah. Daylight savings, according to autistic people, is stupid, and you can't really explain it in a way that will change their mind. Yeah. And I think that where we have the advantage of knowledge as well as personal experience, I think that's why I like our approach to parenting. Whether it's the right or the wrong answer is, is up for debate, but I, I like it in that there is we've, we've sort of learnt, or certainly I've certainly learnt, how to reanalyze my expectations and behaviors. I, I may not necessarily instinctively change it because I, I certainly live by the philosophy that having autism is sort of part of me. It, it's instinctive. I'm not trying to be this way. I'm not trying to be rigid. Um, and it's really a, less of a matter of never thinking in that manner and more about how to respond to it in a more balanced, more situation specific way. Mm. And I think what we do as parents is that we try to do that whenever we come across an issue where we're like, all right, Jake or Matt are being particularly rigid or feeling a very strong emotion about this thing. Do we, A, try to help them fix the problem or B, do we just give them an opportunity to process it themselves and and give them the space and time to just kind of go, all right, this is how they're going to be. Um, Maybe it'll take time and experience and maturity for it to go away. Maybe it won't go away, but oh, well, you know, this is not everything necessarily needs to be fixed, you know? Yeah. So, um, I have a question for you. So with your mum, we'll just use your mum as an example because it's probably the easiest example to use. So we've talked about with us, the idea of if one person cares more, the other person's like, okay, that you care about that. Okay. I acknowledge that you care more. Do you think any of that could be applied to your relationship with your mum? I guess... Yes is kind of the short answer to it. In that, I, part of the problem with my relationship with my mum is that she was, you know, indoctrinated in a very Vietnamese way, which is mm-hmm. that the parent is always right, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had her own issues around control, I think, because she, I think she had very high expectations about what the household should be like. And I certainly wasn't the only person who was beholden to that. So... Um, Everyone in the household had to be a certain way and do a certain thing. And whenever we stayed within the boundaries, it was fine. Whenever we stepped out of line, then kind of a fight ensued, Mm -hmm. I guess. But I think that the problem became that as I got older, I became much more aware of my own independence. And I'd already been kind of independent growing up because my parents worked all the time. So I, I was in inverted commas, looked after by my grandmother in the sense that she cooked my meals. But beyond that, I just kind of did everything myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had shops 10 minutes walk from my house. So I'd just go out for a walk and just walk down to the shops, get my own thing. Which is quite normal at that time. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So so, we used to go to the shops on the Creek at probably the age the boys are now. And they wouldn't go to the shops by themselves. No, 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 not at all. Uh, so, so by the time I kind of got to my teenage years, again, I was trying to figure out who I was and I was kind of trying to enforce my own feelings, but she was like, no, this is what I want you to do because this is what I expect you to do. That is all that is happening. And I think it was very hard for her to deal with that sort of thing. And looking back on it, for the most part, it was well-intentioned on her part because she only knew a certain way. She only knew a certain way to grow up and a way to parent. And she thought that overall she was fairly happy. So she's kind of like, well, if I want, if I 
if I want my child to be happy, therefore I should mimic exactly what happened to me and therefore that's what will make them happy. Mm. But the problem there is that, you know, we, she and I had different ideas about what would make me happy and then we both kind of cared too much, right? Uh, and part of the issue there also, and I guess if we're comparing it to our relationship, is that with our relationship, you and me, I can kind of see the value in the compromise. Mm-hmm. Like, I have enough perspective and maturity to go, yeah, okay, this thing is really small compared to the larger things that are all, overall very good. So, as much as I may not like the way this thing is happening, I'd rather just let that go and keep the good stuff than I would fight for all the minor details. Whereas I know that, again, as a young person, I had no real sense of that. I had no real sense of perspective there. Again, whether that's being a teenager or having autism or a bit of both, it's hard to really know. Um, but I think that kind of philosophy is what I... what uh, that the, the, I think having the perspective is what makes you and I stronger, whereas me and my mum's interactions were different just by age. Fair enough. What was it like when her parents lived with you? In what sense? Well, like, you talk about how, like, the household had to sort of run to her thing. Was, like, was her mum also like that? Like, when your grandparents lived with you, was your mum the matriarch or was your grandmother matriarch? No, my mum was certainly the matriarch. So I I distinctly remember arguments between my mum and her mum about how things should be cooked or the timing of certain things. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother would still argue back. But she was still, I think, ended up just caving in because okay. it was perhaps easier. I don't know the ins and outs. I've certainly never. Well, asked that's about okay. It. That's your impression. Like, because I've heard sometimes, like you know, like they sort of, like the grandmother will be the matriarch while she's around, and then the mum, and then it's like I put up with this, and now it's my turn to be the matriarch. And I feel like sometimes with your mum, like particularly, what comes to mind is the idea that sort of that cultural thing about the grandparents raising the children, which. You know, I've heard from a lot of Asian people, um, sometimes to the point the parents are in a different country. <laughs> yeah. I do sometimes feel a bit bad for your mum because, like, she... Like, if she wanted to sort of have her turn, we kind of cut her out of it. Yeah. By raising our own children. Yeah. So, I do... I'm like, oh, that... Like, it is a bit sad, but then, you know, the only other option would be to, let, like, let her raise the children while we worked... And then at, and then force that upon our children that is like, no, we get to raise your children, you don't get a chance, and it just continues forever. Yeah, it's it's the cycle. It's the cultural cycle that yeah. we have broken. But in in a way, she's the loser of the break of the cycle. Yeah, yeah. Certainly if she if that was her expectation, that I would agree with that. Yeah. So as I said, I do feel sorry for her in situations like that. Mm. Where she made sacrifices like cultural sacrifices that sort of with a future promise that because we don't follow the same cultural practices, she didn't get to have. Yeah. Are there any things that you worry about as the kids get older? Because we've talked a lot about what we do for the kids now. And, and, you know, Jake and Matt are wonderful, wonderful children. But do you ever worry about what might happen when they grow up and become teenagers? Uh, I think I've always worried about Matt. From when he was a baby, I always said... He is the miniature version of me, mm. and two versions of me are going to clash at some stage. <laughs> um, like, I don't know. Maybe I've changed as a parent in those years. Um, and, I, like, I think I have a good relationship with them both, and I think I'll probably continue... Like, I've, I've learned what I need to do to, I guess, 
keep on their good side. It sounds really bad, doesn't it? No. <laughs> it sounds like I'm some sort of battered wife. I'm like, <laughs> it was my fault. <laughs> it's I shouldn't have made them angry. <laughs> it's a collaborative thing. It's a you know, it's a, it's the push and pull of parenting. I think I think old fashioned parenting was very much push. Very much like, you know, the child must obey. If the child does not obey, they will be punished. Whereas I think yeah. we are taking a much more, um, yeah, collaborative approach. But obviously those those boundaries will be tested as they get older and gain more sense of the independence without necessarily having the skills to be independent. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, so if I just say what I've noticed, like, as an adult, that probably relates to me as a teenager, is it... There may have been a sense that I thought my parents knew more about my life than they did. Like, almost to the point that maybe I thought they could read my mind. Because mm. I think that, like, I had quite bad bullying experiences for quite a long time. Like, most of my schooling I was bullied for. And I think that I thought they knew what was going on. I think I thought they knew the extent of it. And then later, I kind of went, actually, maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't know how bad things were for me. And therefore, I kind of end up in this cycle of going, why are they not helping me? Like, what, Like, how are they not intervening? But if I hadn't actually told them, I just assumed they were able to read my mind or knew what was going on. So, I guess, with the kids, especially with being the, you know, full-time parent carer, I feel like I... I am very involved in their lives. Like it's gonna it's it's gonna be a hard thing to find that balance between being involved enough that I don't end up with teenage me, whereas giving enough independence so I don't end up with teenage you. <laughs> like that's gonna be a hard balance for me and you probably to find that we don't go too far in either way. I don't prote- overprotect them to the point where they feel like they have no independence. Um, though I think of the two of us, I do try to stretch their independence. Mm. Um, like with, you know, toilet training and, um, night feeding, but also with like, I remember there was a point where I got them to pack for a sleepover at your parents' house, which is the end of the street. Um, and the next day they were in their pajamas because they forgot to pack clothes And we had discussion about, you're like, why didn't you pack their clothes for you? And I'm like, well, I told them to pack their stuff. They made a mistake and now they know. And it was a safe environment. Nothing bad was going to happen for them to forget things. And there was a point where, when they were younger, I packed their stuff for a sleepover and I forgot to pack underwear. So my (laughs) mum and the kids mocked me for the fact that I forgot to pack their underwear. So it's not like I'm perfect either, even if I do pack it. Mm. But I do, yeah, I do try to give them a lot of independence. So hopefully we wouldn't end up in the same situation that you did. Um, also, I don't know, how do I say this without saying too harsh? I don't really view their career as my project to, to be successful with. Whereas I think your mum would count you as success because you became a doctor. Well, even then, though, and this, this I think, might be my own interpretation, her uh, measure of success wasn't just about being a doctor. It was also basically taking up her mantle. 
So being this leader in the community and having working in the clinic that she'd set up and all that. So actually, there were there were a number of times throughout my adulthood where I actually still didn't feel like I measured up. And that was... I guess if you were meant to take over the family business, you didn't measure up. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, there was a lot of discussions about her holding on to the clinic, no matter how many times you said, I'm never going to take over. Yeah, exactly. See, I, I share your belief that I, I don't think career is the answer to happiness. And I've, I've learned that a lot from my own experiences of adapting my job and looking at other careers and kind of understanding that what I want is different from what I need. And obviously you want to try and marry the two as much as possible. And I, I've also sort of come to understand that really, um, that cliched phrase of it, it won't feel like work if you love what you do. Like, I get that, you know, I, I do understand that. But then on the logical side, you kind of have to accept. For, so, for example, there's a period there I wanted to be a screenwriter. But the contrast to that is that if I wanted to be a screenwriter, I'd have to accept that I might be poor and that my work would be inconsistent and insecure uh, and that part I probably wouldn't be able to accept. And it might not be the glorified version that you think it is. Exactly. And It I was think... like when I wanted to be a lawyer because I'd watch Alan McBeal, and then I worked in a law firm, and I'm like, actually, this is... I'm watching the people, and they, they don't have the life I want. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I agree. The career thing isn't particularly crucial for me. I, I, one of the things you were saying earlier, I guess, about you and I trying to balance each other out, I think what that thought process does is it ignores the fact that parenting is not an equation and the, or if it is an equation the variable in the equation is the child themselves hmm. because as much so so often there are some wonderful i see wonderful parents out there parents with really good intentions really wanting the best for their child but what happens is that it does just doesn't match with what the child wants hmm. And that, and that's when the clash comes, is that the parent then goes, but I know better than you from my own experience. And to some degree, they're right. To some degree, that they, they have the experience and know what works and what doesn't. But at the same time, it is important to allow the child to make their own mistakes and to learn from them. So even that bagpacking thing, I would argue that there is a balance to that in that in, independence is important and learning from your mistakes is important, but also guidance is important as well. So it's not the, the parent should do everything for the child, but it's also not quite the parent should, the child should learn how to do everything for themselves without any instruction about how to do it. Yeah, I guess. Like, um, I might compare it to video games where, like, sometimes you can pop a child in front of a video game and they kind of just learn by trying. Mm. Like, famously, like, I read, like, I watched an analysis of, like, the first level of the first Mario. And it's just, like, there is no instructions. The only indications you kind of get is which way he's facing yeah. is which way you might go. And if you walk straight, you die. So then you might try some other buttons. Like, oh, jump. I can jump over this thing. And you kind of just learn with no instruction. Um, and I think the kids are capable of learning video games like that. Yeah, but the, as we've talked about in the gaming episode, the, the difference is with a video game, if you fail, you get to start all over again with zero consequences. Whereas in real life, you develop traumas and you learn things. And, and like, obviously, again, it depends on the scale of the activity. Mm. There, are, there are certain activities like the bagpacking where the consequence is exceptionally minor. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. Like, there's not like they'll learn not to run over the road once they get hit by a car. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah, it was, I, f I felt like it was a perfectly safe thing. It wasn't like they were going for a couple of nights and if they didn't have any clothes, 
they wouldn't be able to do anything for the day. Yeah. Like, it was literally just sleeping there. <laughs> mm. The fact that they, you know, got in the car in their pyjamas, drove up the road for five minutes, then got dressed, was not a con- not much of a consequence at all. Mm. But I think that's the only time they've done it. So they kind of learned from that very um, safe lesson. Yeah. I mean, back, I guess back to the, the question I was asking from about, you know, teenage years and, and autism, I think. Oh, just before you move on, I just want to, like, try to give it a bit of context. Um, so, I think that with your mum, I'll use your mum as an example again. <laughs> um, sometimes she has got really freaked out about the kids doing things like touching a knife or something. Mm. Like, I think she's gone too far. So, that's... I guess that's what I'm trying to say when we're talking about would I, I guess, end up with a teenage you with the same issues. I feel like what I'm doing and what you're also doing with giving them these chances um, to very safely deal with, you know, very blunt knives to begin with and move up. Mm. Um, We're obviously moving them at independence level that I can compare to what your mum would want to do with them. So I feel like at least in that way I can sort of measure, maybe in a very autistic way, the difference. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So what are you going to say? So, particularly with Jake, Jake he has trouble with understanding his own emotions, to some degree. And I'm not even talking about controlling them, I'm actually talking about just the understanding of and the motivation of. Uh, and, you know, he is nine. I... As, as with me, I guess I worry that when he gets to teenage years, where there is going to be a lot of questioning about himself, I think I worry that it's just all, all going to get very overwhelming. And Jake and I are very similar like that, in that when I feel overwhelmed by something, if there are too many things to think about or too many things to do, my ability to process information and, and emotions be, just gets impaired really, really substantially to the point where I just, I don't, I don't necessarily know how to handle something. And if I were in a situation that I couldn't escape, like if I was sitting in an exam, for example, I, I don't know how I'd manage it. Therefore, I worry about how Jake would necessarily handle it as well. So even if we do our best to give him guidance, give him comfort, give him space, try to give him whatever he needs at the time, I guess I don't really know what would happen if things do go off the rails. Okay, so if, if we're moving into, I guess, giving some advice, what i found works, and this is more for listener, not you, you know this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what i found works with situations like that um, is I always present it as what they can do next time, not what they should have done this time. Mm. So an example was when Jake was in a classroom, another kid was having a meltdown, and it was so noisy, and Jake didn't know what to do because he... The rules where he wasn't allowed to leave the classroom and he's just standing in the middle of the room crying. So the way I dealt with that was like, okay, I'm like, okay, let's, let's put a plan in, in case it happens again. We'll talk to your teacher about in that situation, where are you allowed to go? Are you allowed to go outside? Are you allowed to go around the court? Because the library was nearby. Like, can you, can you sit outside? So what he needed was the permission from the teacher for next time, but I didn't focus on I wasn't like, well, you could have just left. It was all about, this is our plan for next time. And it didn't occur again. It was pretty late in the year. The chances were probably pretty slim that it was going to occur again. But I did focus on a plan for next time, which kind of 
meant that I wasn't judging what he had done. Because I completely understood why he had done it. Um, and it's like, early on, their psychologist gave me this sort of... It looks like a bell curve. And she's like, when a kid's having a meltdown, you can either intervene as it's going up or as it's coming down. But once it's up to a certain point, you just have to ride it out. Mm. Like, you can't intervene at this point because it's already happening. It's got the momentum. Um, so, yeah. So, with with autistic children, I've learned to either de-escalate or discuss it later. Um, so I think that that's, yeah, that's what, I guess I, he'd learn by experience. So he'd have to experience things first. Um, but I think I would focus on putting in plans for the next time it happens. Yeah. Like I remember weirdly, um, so there was a kid bullying me. Well, my parents must've been aware of this. This is pretty early on. Because they used to have these little chocolate milks, and they're called Moo. Mm. Um, and there was this one kid who's like, oh, you're drinking poo, you're drinking poo. And I, t- I also told my parents, because they're like, well, you should just say, can't you read? Mm-hmm. And I did. Like, they gave me a comeback to it. And it stopped that, that sort of bullying thing. I'm not sure whether it's good advice to give your kids comebacks to their bullies. Uh, but yeah, it worked. Yeah, tools about that. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. It, it did work. So, um, yeah, like, my parents gave me a strategy for next time. Yeah. They didn't say, why did you get upset about it or why did you respond? Yeah. They gave me a strategy for what to do if it happened again. Yeah. I think if we're going to sort of wrap it up and have our final lessons, I'd, uh, I think that the... There is a lot of responsibility about being a family member of someone with autism and being a person with autism and your responsibilities to family. And I think it's about recognising recognizing the value and recognising your um, responsibilities as part of being in a family. But mm. also kind of understanding as part of the value concept that if your family isn't serving your needs or if you're finding that you you as a family member of someone with autism, you're not coping with how to handle things. Sometimes it is about just deferring, getting some help, getting someone else involved, re- you know, relieving yourself of a bit of responsibility because it is hard. It is a hard thing to deal with. And these are, there are certain things that are just not instinctive. And there are a lot of things in life that are not instinctive that we think, oh yeah, you should just figure it out. Um, but in this particular situation, you know, I think it's really important to, be able to let go and knowing that letting go is not a bad thing. It's not failure. It's not giving up. It's just recognizing that we we all have our individual limitations. Sometimes we just need the space to gain some perspective or some time or some maturity. And hopefully, you know, that, that means that although your relationship may not be great in the short term, in the long term, it gets, it's served better. Hmm. I agree with that. Um, I think, I think also, I guess having a diagnosis can give you the, um, the vocab. Yeah. And the framework by which Like, you know, you go to your room can be changed to, I think you need some alone time. Yeah. Or I think you need some time out. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think there, there is benefits Mm. to dealing with a teenager who has autism if you know they have autism. Yeah. Over just thinking that, yeah, they should be like everyone else's kid. Yeah. 
Alright, and that's the end of the episode. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, if you like what you hear, please make sure you subscribe wherever you get good podcasts. Uh, find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Atypical Rainbow. Leave a comment, leave a question. Let us know how you feel and um, yeah, we will respond in time. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time.